Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. Praise be to God. All right. Anybody, uh, anybody catch um, America's Got Talent in the past week or so? You've seen the story of Nightbird? Anybody? It's all over the internet. I, I mean, I say it's all over the internet. I was pointed to it by someone else because I don't keep up with these kind of things. But uh, apparently Nightbird's been trending a lot. So this is a woman named uh, Jane Markzuski, uh from Zanesville, Ohio, um, who went Audition for America's Got Talent, and she sang this original song. Now, Jane's story is unique because she's had cancer three times. She's fought multiple bouts of cancer. What you didn't learn on America's Got Talent either is that in the midst of her second battle with cancer, she also went through a divorce. Her husband left. And so this woman has just dealt with pain after pain after pain. And yet, here she is auditioning for America's Got Talent, and she is just radiating hope. And just sharing hope. And you can feel the collective gasp in the audience as they're just hearing her story and hearing her heart. And then she sings this original song and she gets the golden buzzer, which like on America's Got Talent, like apparently each judge can like choose the golden buzzer and they just, they don't even vote. Like they just get to go through um, if, if one of the judges chooses the golden buzzer. So they give her the golden buzzer because she, her story is amazing. Her voice is amazing. This original song is incredible. Uh, and, and everybody's just kind of taken aback and in tears at her story. And so I watched this um, on YouTube. We don't watch America's Got Talent, although we might start. I don't know. Um, we don't usually watch the show, but I'm watching this on YouTube, and I'm, I'm feeling the same feels that everybody else is feeling, right? Like, I'm teary-eyed, and I'm misty-eyed. I'm like, man, that's amazing. Like, that's an incredible story. She's got such great hope, and it's incredible. <laughs> you know? And I'm doing the same thing everybody else is doing. And you know as followers of Jesus, right, when you can look at somebody, and you can hear in their voice, and you can see around them just this person has hope. This person knows Jesus, whether they explicitly say it or not. You ever gotten that about somebody? Yeah? I mean, if you've been following Jesus any amount of time, you've got this sense that you just know. And so I was like, man, this girl knows Jesus. Like, didn't say anything about it. You won't hear about it on AGT, but this girl knows Jesus. So I start looking up her story, and I find this podcast interview she did back in March of this year on a podcast called uh, Then God Moved. And she's talking about her cancers and the way that God has been present for her and, and her past days worship leading and 
And uh, she's a graduate of Liberty University. She loves Jesus. And I was like, I knew it. I knew it because you can't have that kind of hope. You cannot exude that kind of hope without Jesus. You just can't. And over and over and over again, as we hear these inspirational stories and as we hear the stories of hope, you you get the sense that like almost inevitably, almost always, it turns out this person follows Jesus because you can't have that kind of hope without him. And it's amazing that our world is, is so hungry for hope that you'll hear stories like Jane's, stories like Nightbirds. You'll hear stories like, like someone who has overcome such great odds to, to make it, to, to find hope, to, to persevere through struggle. And then later you find out, well, it was their faith in Christ that led them through it. It's their faith in Christ that gave them the hope. And you don't hear that in the main story, right? You don't hear that in the popular YouTube version. You don't hear that on, on the news because to the rest of the world, that's just periphery to how they've persevered, how they've gotten through. Because what we want is the hope. I don't need your Jesus, but I want the hope. But what the world fails to see, what the world fails to understand, is that hope without Christ is just wishful thinking. Hope without Jesus is just grasping at air. You're holding nothing. There is no hope without him. Because only he can change the circumstances of your life. And only he can offer the eternal life that we so long for. And that is the only basis for true hope. Because I'll let you in on a little secret. You gonna die someday. And so am I. And if we have no hope beyond that moment, if we have no hope beyond the death of our physical bodies, then all of our hopes are dust in the wind. They're worthless. They're pointless. And only in the hope of the resurrection, as we heard in our confession of faith earlier, only in the hope of the resurrection do we have an eternal hope, an everlasting hope, a hope that cannot fail, cannot let us down, a hope that will always be there. And so in a world starving for hope, we as the church, we as followers of Jesus, have the only offer of lasting hope that can satisfy the deep desire and need of our world. And so we can watch inspirational stories like Jane's all day long. You can look up on and, and, and feel good. You can read chicken noodle soup for the soul or whatever it is all you want and get all the inspiration that you want. But until your hope is anchored in Jesus Christ, it is nothing. It's a vague optimism that will let you down. Now that sounds really harsh to every other worldview and every other philosophy and every other religion in the world because it is, because it's truth. Nothing else can give you the hope of Jesus. Nothing else can give you an eternal abiding hope. And that eternal abiding hope is what the scripture points us to today. That's the end of the Bible. The very end of the New Testament points us to the only true and abiding hope that will see us through absolutely anything and everything that will well deep within us and carry us into eternity. The only hope that is worth putting any of your hope into is found right here at the end of the Bible, at the end of the New Testament, at the end of Revelation, 
And so we start in chapter 21, verse 9. And we read about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And immediately we're hit with multiple weird kind of images that are stacked on top of one another. So, so far back in chapter 19, you heard about the bride of Christ, that Christ would come and be wed to his bride, which we learned was his people. And here at the beginning of, or in chapter 21, verse 9, we read that this angel is walking with the apostle John, showing him this new vision. And he says, I'm going to show you the bride coming down out of heaven. Only when John looks up, instead of seeing a person dressed or a woman dressed to get married, he sees a city coming down. Now, that's, that's weird. I'm going to show you the bride. Here's a city. And Jesus is going to marry the city. And that's strange. And it should be strange. But we immediately see the bride of Christ, this new Jerusalem, this new city coming down. And then the angel takes a measuring stick, a measuring rod, and he begins to measure the city. You're like, what the heck is this? Like, if this was a real bride, this would be somebody with, like, the, the measuring tape, you know, working on the wedding dress, right? And so the angel takes a measuring rod, and he's measuring the city out. And there are all kinds of 12s in this. The, the city is 12,000 stadia long by 12,000 stadia deep, and it's 12,000 stadia high. It's a perfect cube. And then it's got 12 foundations, and on the 12 foundations are written the names of the 12 apostles, and you just see 12 show up over and over and over again. Now, if you do the math on this, this makes the city about 1,400 miles wide by 1,400 miles long by 1,400 miles high. And you go, wait a minute. If there are billions of Christians in the world now, and there have been millions and billions of Christians prior to us, how are we all going to fit? Like, that seems like a really big space until you talk about 5 billion people fitting into it. Like, 5 billion people fitting into 1,400 square miles just doesn't, or whatever it is, whatever the square mileage is on that, it's a lot. But 5 billion people fitting in that just doesn't seem right. And so you've got people who are interpreting this who are like, you know, heaven is only 1,400 miles wide by 1,400 miles long by 1,400 miles high. So, you know, there are only like a million Christians in all of history, okay? So the rest of y'all get going to hell, right? That's, that's, not, that's not what we're supposed to do with this, okay? These are not literal measurements of what, how, how big heaven is. It's crazy that you would talk about worshiping an infinite God, a God who is, who is bigger than we could possibly imagine, who is infinitely large, and then say, but that God's heaven is only 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles, and he can only really love about a million of you at a time, okay? That's, it makes no sense, right? That's because it wasn't meant to be literal. I mean, we're already talking about a city that is a bride, okay? So we've, we've thrown literal out the window a long time ago. We're just in the realm of ridiculousness, Here's what, these were, here's what these numbers mean. Twelve is the number of the original patriarchs of Israel, the fathers of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve is the number of the apostles, because when Jesus came and appointed twelve apostles, what he was saying is, I'm rebuilding the people of God upon these twelve. They are the new twelve fathers of the church, twelve fathers of the people of God. Just as the twelve fathers of the twelve tribes were the fathers of Israel, the twelve apostles are now the fathers of the church, the fathers of the new constituted people of God. And so the twelve number is a sign of completion for the people of God. And the size of the uh, new heaven and the new earth, the size of the new city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, is a symbol of perfection, of totality. All of the people of God through all of time make up this city, and they are perfectly united together. And it's a cube because in the old temple in Jerusalem, 
the Holy of Holies, the very center of the temple where the presence of God dwelt, was a perfect cube. It was perfect in its proportions. And so what this is saying is this new Jerusalem, this is the Holy of Holies. This new Jerusalem, this perfect cube that is represented by all of the people of God throughout history who are united together, live in perfect, undiluted presence of God because now this is the Holy of Holies. You don't have to go into any place. You don't have to access some place anymore to get to the presence of God. The presence of God is perfectly fulfilled in this place, in this new Jerusalem. And so that's what the twelves are about. And then we read there are 12 stones. There are 12 precious stones set into the foundations of this building. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, there was a guy named Moses. You ever heard of Moses before? I hope you've heard of Moses. Moses is the guy who leads the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt and helps to create the nation of Israel. Moses had a brother named Aaron. And if if you read Exodus... Aaron's really kind of the main leader of the people. Like Moses is the prophet. He's got the staff. He's the one pointing the way to go. But Aaron is the high priest. Aaron is the one who like mediates the presence of God to the people. Aaron is the one who's appointed to to share God's presence with his people. And then their sister Miriam, who doesn't get nearly enough screen time, is like, She's amazing. She is killer. That song we sang, The Lord is My Strength from Exodus 15, that's Miriam's song. Right, Miriam is really the one who holds, she's the glue that holds these brothers together. And if you've got a family with two fighting brothers and a sister, you know who's keeping the peace in that house. Right? If she's not instigating, she's keeping the peace. Right? And Miriam could do both. She was a tough broad. So there are these three siblings, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And Aaron is called out to be the high priest. And when he's called out to be the high priest, God says, Aaron, I want you to make this breastplate. And on this breastplate that you'll wear over your robes when you're serving as priests, there are 12 precious stones. And these 12 stones represent the 12 tribes. And so these 12 stones set into the foundations of the new Jerusalem are a symbol both of the unity of the people, Old Testament and New. The 12 stones representing the 12 tribes and the 12 names of the apostles written on the foundation. So there's unity across all of Scripture between the Jewish population and the Christian population. But it's also a symbol that there is no need for a high priest to mediate the presence of God anymore. We all have undiluted access to the presence of God. That's what these 12 precious stones in the foundations of the New Jerusalem mean. And so all of this comes together to paint this picture of the New Jerusalem as a perfectly united people with complete access to God, with no fear, no in-between, no go-between between us and God. We just get to enjoy his presence forever. And that's what chapter 21 is really getting at. That's what this picture of the new Jerusalem is really about. And the gates to this city are always open. So in the ancient world, you have walled cities. Why do you have walls on cities? To protect it. You have gates on cities so you can protect it. So at nighttime, the gates shut. And the only people who get into the city at night are people who can prove they've got a legitimate reason to come into the city. Otherwise, you're not allowed access. The gates stay shut and you stay out. But in this city, the gates are always open. The gates are beautiful and they're monstrous and they never, ever shut because there is perfect peace. The enemies of God have all been destroyed. There's no fear. There's nothing to bring a threat to the city of God. So these gates, they stay open 
all the time. There's never any reason to be afraid. There's no reason for insecurity in this city. God is its protector. And so we come then to chapter 22 in these first verses of chapter 22, which paint for us a picture of this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and new earth as a new garden of Eden. You remember back in Genesis chapter 1, at the very beginning when, or chapters 1 through 4, at the very beginning when God created heaven and earth, and he creates the earth and he sets human beings in this garden of Eden. And in this garden of Eden, the garden of Eden is only one small place on an earth that is chaotic, on an earth that is untamed. But in this one spot, the glory of God has shown and God has put his vice regents, the people who he's created to be his kind of princes and princelings, there on the earth. And their job is to take the Garden of Eden and spread it across the whole earth. So that instead of it just being this one little pocket where they get to enjoy God's presence and get to enjoy God's, God's uh, intimacy, they're supposed to take God's rule and reign over the Garden of Eden, and they're supposed to spread it out over this whole chaotic, dark world. And they're supposed to be the agents that spread God's creation everywhere. Only they fail, right? They do the one thing God says don't do. They fall to temptation. So instead of them spreading the Garden of Eden everywhere and pushing back against the chaos and brokenness of the world by spreading the order of the Garden of Eden, they've now allowed disorder and chaos into the Garden. And so for that reason, God has to say, you can't be in the Garden anymore. You've become agents of the very chaos that you were supposed to be eliminating. You've become agents of the very brokenness that you were supposed to be pushing back against and destroying by bringing the order of the garden. So you can't come back into the garden. But later on, the prophet Ezekiel will see this vision of the temple of God. And from the temple of God come these four rivers flowing out from the mercy seat. That is the, the kind of throne in the temple of God where God resigns. And there are these four rivers flowing out and they water the earth. And it's a picture of a new Eden that covers the earth. And instead of relying on sinful people to spread it, the very presence of God will spread by these waters from the temple out to the entire world. And here in Revelation 22, at the beginning, we see that exact imagery. As Jesus has come back, the new Jerusalem has come down, the earth is being remade, and we see the rivers of life flowing out from the city into this broken world to remake and recreate it. And in the center of it all, on the throne from which the rivers are flowing, sits God himself. And there's no day or night because God is light. There's no need for sleep. There's no need for insecurity, remember? And so God is there in the center. There's no crying anymore. The tears are wiped away. There is no curse any longer. The world is healed. And along the river of life that flows from the throne of God, there are well, there's the tree of life that bears 12 kinds of fruits and which leaves are given for the healing of the nations, proclaiming the peace and the truth of God. And in the center of this city is God himself. Just as in Eden, the presence of God, the undiluted presence of God was the real treasure of the Garden of Eden. Here in the new city, the newly remade city, it's God's presence in the center of it that is the true treasure. And this is the future to which we look forward. This is our future hope. 
this new city, this new heaven, this new earth, where there is no peace, where there's no, no conflict, where there is only peace, where there is no sin, there is no chaos, there is no disorder. All is light, and all is beauty, and all is health, and all is flourishing. And there's no reason for insecurity of any kind. There's no sickness of any kind. There's no more broken bodies. People don't die anymore. Cancer is eliminated. Poverty is no more. Provision is the word of the day. Where God is all and in all, that is the future. And that's a future that I don't, I don't know anybody who would turn that down. I don't know anybody who would look at that and go, yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I really like conflict. I just, I'd love to be fighting with people. I mean, I really love having to lock my door because I don't want people to steal stuff. Like, can you imagine a sinless world? Take a moment and just imagine what would not exist in a sinless world. Imagine the things we have in our lives that you would not have to do or have to worry about in a world where there was absolutely no sin. Just think for a moment. No locks. No need to lock anything up. There's no point in it. No police. No laws to enforce because no one ever breaks any laws. No one ever does anything to hurt anybody else. In a truly sinless world, you wouldn't have to worry about natural disasters. So you don't have, nat- you don't have disaster response teams. In a sinless world, there are no hospitals. Not in this world. Because no one's sick. No one's hurt. All of these little things that we've learned to live with, all these little things that make our lives better, that are necessary to functioning in our world, are only necessary because of its brokenness. But in this world that God is promising, none of it's necessary anymore. Because there's no sin to break the world. There's no sin to cause harm to people. There's no sin to bring about sickness and death and pain. It's just the presence of God and eternal, everlasting joy in one another's company. That's the world that God is promising us. That's the world that we get to look forward to. That is the hope eternal. That's the hope that drives us. And anything short of that, any kind of hope short of that, is wildly optimistic and grasping at straws. It's empty. Anything short of the world that Jesus has promised us right here. And so finally, he ends chapter 22 by Jesus saying, I'm coming. This is your promise. I am coming. And if this is the world you look forward to, then Jesus' promise that I am coming should work within you such a joy, such a peace, Unfortunately, too many in the church, when we say Jesus is coming, for too many people in the church, that only works up anxiety. Because they've been fed this system of of torture and pain and judgment and torment that is coming with Jesus. They've been fed this idea that when Jesus comes back, it actually is bad news for the world. It's bad news. We're going to suffer, and it's going to struggle, and it's going to be painful. When Jesus comes back, all of this awful stuff is going to happen. And it's going to be hard and it's going to hurt. And so the the promise of Jesus coming back isn't good news to them. 
I know Christians who would rather die than see Jesus return in their lifetime because they don't want to have to live through the tribulation. Because they've been fed bad theology. When Jesus returns, when Jesus comes back, it is nothing but good news for his followers. It is nothing but joy for his followers. We ought to long for Jesus' return more than anything. We ought to long for Jesus' return because we long for his presence. As we've been making our way through Revelation, we have seen these cycles of judgment and of Jesus' return. We've seen these cycles of of God judging evil and, and bringing destruction upon evil over and over. And each one of those cycles ends with Jesus' return. And if we understand those cycles as describing some end time period right before Jesus comes back, then yeah, I don't want to live through that either. But if instead I understand that when Revelation talks about that, it's talking about the world in which we live right now, the pain and hell and struggle that we experience on the daily right now, the pain of living in a broken world right now, and that the only real prescription for that, the only real treatment for that is the return of Jesus and the making everything right, then I long for him to come back. There's no time period to escape at the end because I'm living through it now. I'm already suffering now. I'm already struggling now. I'm already fighting the fight now. I want Jesus to return so badly because this is the world I want. But in the meantime, I have a responsibility. In the meantime, I have a responsibility to, like Jesus, like verse 17 says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. I have a responsibility to do that with my life right now. To walk this world, arms open and say, Jesus is calling you to come. If you are thirsty, if you want hope, if you want healing, if you want the true life that Jesus offers, if you want peace, if you want provision, if you want the blessings that God has, all you have to do is come and drink freely from the waters of life that Jesus offers. In the meantime, while I'm living through the hell of the world, longing for the return of Jesus, my responsibility is to help everyone else gain that same hope. My responsibility is to be so vocal, so active, so real about the hope that is in me, about the hope of this world that Jesus is bringing, that I'm sharing it with everyone that I meet. So they can have the same hope. Because the truth is that if I don't know Jesus, if I'm not a follower of him, if I haven't taken on the invitation to come and drink of the waters of life, the return of Jesus should scare me. There should be anxiety there. If I'm not a follower of Jesus, the return of Jesus should cause me to shudder. Because I will go the way of the rest of the world. And when I look out with compassion on my world, not judgment, not judgmentalism, but when I look out at compa on, with compassion upon my neighbors who don't know Jesus, upon a broken and dying world that hasn't followed him, I long for Jesus to come for his people, and yet my heart breaks for them, knowing their future, knowing that they truly have no hope, because any hope outside of Jesus is vain and useless.
while I live in this world, while I experience these cycles of judgment and of freedom that we've been reading through Revelation, as I experience the pains and trouble of the world, I hold fast to my hope in Jesus, the one who will resurrect me, the one who will make all things right, the one who promises me a hope and a future. But I also walk brokenhearted and in mourning for those who don't know him, even as I long for his return. And that works in me a responsibility to go into the world and to say, come, come freely drink from the waters of life. There's no rule list you have to keep. There's no checklist you have to mark off. There's no washing of yourself you have to do before you simply come to Jesus. Receive the hope that he has to give. So that when I hear stories like Jane Marzuski, and when I hear stories of inspiration and stories of hope, I can point people to the only true and everlasting hope there is in Jesus. I can point people to the true and abiding hope that there is in Jesus. I can let them know. Look, the reason that these people make it through, the reason that they have such hope, the reason you find their stories so inspirational is because it's the hope that you want and it's the hope that is rooted in Jesus Christ. And there's no other hope. Oh, you can put your hope in all kinds of things. You can put it in your ability to make money. You can put it in your personality. Most of us would be well advised not to do that. You can put your hope in all kinds of things. You can put your hope in any kind of created material thing that you want. And you know what it's going to do? It's going to fail. Your looks are going to fade. Your ability to do that job is not going to be with you forever. You're not going to win everybody over with your winning personality. I certainly don't. You're not going to be perfect and true and right. And if you're building your hope on any created thing, it will fail you. If you're building your hope on your wealth, wealth can be taken away. Building your hope on your looks, your looks will fade. If you're building your hope on living forever, well, you're going to die. It's just going to happen. But if you build your hope on Jesus Christ, the only eternal lasting king who has offered you free life through him, then you have a rock-solid foundation. Then nothing can steal that hope away so that when all the rest of the things of the world fall away, when your health fails, when the money's gone, when your looks are no more, when your personality falters, when people don't like you and say wrong things against you, when the world doesn't live up to your expectations, you have a rock-solid, eternal hope in the living King who promises you resurrection, victory over the last and final enemy of death that we all face. The only hope worth holding on to. That's who Jesus is. And right now, as we live through this life, it is our responsibility, church, to share that hope with everyone. And like the spirit and the bride here in Revelation 22, to open wide our arms and say, come to the rivers of the water of life and drink freely. No matter who you are or where you have come from, come and drink and receive the life that only Jesus can give. Church, let's walk in that hope today and that mission. Let's pray. God, thank you for this hope. Thank you that we have this hope in the depths of our soul. God, that no matter what comes, 
you will carry us through. And Lord, that you have the only eternal lasting plan to bring perfect righteousness, to bring perfect peace, to bring perfect healing and wholeness to the world. And Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, today that you would help us to place every ounce of our hope in our King Jesus so that we can have a lasting foundation. And Lord, that you would make us diligent, you would make us, Lord, enthusiastic to share this hope with a world that is deeply, deeply hungry for it, but doesn't know where to find the everlasting hope. Let us be true and honor you in pointing people to the river of life that will never fail. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.